Thank you for listening to the Sharon Church Podcast. If you'd like to know more about the church, please visit us at SharonChurch.com. Now we hope you learn from and enjoy today's message. Grab your Bibles. Turn to Matthew chapter 5. We'll be in Matthew 5 again this morning, continuing our study through Jesus' epic Sermon on the Mount. That's what we call it. Jesus calls it the good news of the kingdom. Uh, so that's what we're going to call it, the good news of the kingdom. So we're continuing to study. We're in the beginning section, which is in Latin, is called the Beatitudes. It's just a series of blessings, nine of them. And we hit the pinnacle of it last week, uh, the halfway point, uh, blessing five, which is blessing uh, to those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And we talked about you got to pass through this river of mercy now to transition to the last four. And so we're doing that here this morning. On the screen now will be some scripture I'm going to use this morning. You can jot it down, take a picture of that, and just hold it for yourself. I want you to know I'm not making this up. It's in scripture. Particularly this morning, I need you to see that it's in scripture, that I'm not making it up. This has been the story from the beginning and will continue to be the story. If you have any questions following uh, the sermon, I'd love to talk with you. Um, You can email me or we can talk afterwards as well. All right, so let's dig in. We're gonna begin here in Matthew chapter five. Here is our blessing for this morning. Matthew five, verse eight. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Let's go to God and ask for help. God, we need you. This is your word written by your hand through your people, through your spirit, so we need you to help us. God, in our flesh and our own understandings, we make a mess of this collection of scrolls, and so we need your help here today uh, to know your intent, to know what you have for us, not just in the moment, but why you wrote this to us. So God, give us eyes to hear and eyes to see. Let's do that, eyes to see and ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. He can do a lot of things. I'm not sure the eyes to hear is something he wants to do for us. All right, so uh, I don't know if you've experienced this before. Um, let's just, we'll start simple. Have you ever experienced at home um, where one of your family members is looking for something and you know exactly where it is? And so you describe to this person where it is and you describe with painstaking detail where this thing is. And they come back to you 30 seconds later and say, I couldn't find it. Has that ever happened to you? Yeah? Yeah. You know exactly where it is because you put it there. And so you explain to them, here is where it is. And they go and look. And for some reason, no matter the detail you've given them, you gave them a map where X marks the spot and they still can't find it. That happens to you? Maybe you're the one who's on the receiving end of that. And it's like you've gotten all the details that your eyes just aren't open to see it for some reason. And they think you're lying. You're like, no, I looked. Like, they're like, did you pick stuff up? You're like, no. Why would I move things? Right? How about this? How about um, you're trying to give somebody directions to somewhere, and so you give them the detail of destruction, of not destruction, instructions of how to get somewhere. You give them the destination, you give them the address, you tell them look for landmarks and things like that, and they still can't find that building. Has that ever happened for you? Or maybe you're the one who received the directions and you still couldn't find that building. But then something happens. Let's just say it's a doctor's office. And somebody's talking about this doctor they go to, explains where the doctor's office is, and you go and try to find it, you can't find it. But then you have to go see the doctor. And then you're given directions to find the doctor, and so you find that doctor's office. And then from that point forward, you never don't see that doctor's office whenever you drive past it. Do you experience that? 
number of years ago, Meredith had to go to a, a chiropractor, and so we found one, and she went to the chiropractor, and she tried to explain to me where it is, and I'm awful, just terrible at directions, so it's why I would never survive hundreds of years ago, but uh, so she's explaining to me, yeah, that sounds great, yes, great, still no idea where it is, and then one day, we're driving past it, and she points out where it is, and I'm like, a medical professional works in that building, that's why I would have never seen it there. But now, anytime we drive past that area, it's like it's all I see. It's like I know where the doctor's office is. You've experienced that same thing before? So here's what's gonna happen for us here this morning. We're gonna study scripture, and my prayer is that the same thing happens for us today. But the truth is, it's really hard to give directions about scripture without you needing it, without you needing to go there yourself. But I think we've all gone here. The question is whether or not our eyes have been opened to what uh, we need to see here this morning. So this epic Sermon on the Mount, this good news of the kingdom, all has context, all scripture has context. And this good news uh, is from Jesus, and he's giving this sermon, but he's not in a church, he's not in a synagogue, he's just on a hillside, surrounded by multitudes of people. And we're not talking good old southern people who've gathered around him in their khakis and ties, not those kinds of people. Not the ones who can't wait to get to the restaurant after church. This is different kinds of people. And we read about this in Matthew chapter four to give us context. Jesus' uh, relative, John the Baptist, has been arrested. Jesus had been um, baptized, had been declared the son of God and he, in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, being tempted by the devil, by the evil one. And he comes back to find news that his, the one who had laid the ground for him, John the baptizer, has now been arrested. And so in John chapter four, verse 17, we see that from that day forward, from when Jesus figures, hears about John the baptizer, he begins to preach, to proclaim, to give a message, to give a sermon. And here's his sermon on, on repeat. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Here's the message Jesus gives is to repent, is to turn, to change our mind in a way that changes direction. And why? Because Jesus says there's a new kingdom in town. There's been one kingdom, the kingdom of the world, but now that I'm here as the king, there's a new kingdom, there's a kingdom of heaven. And because there's a new kingdom, now you've got options, you have to repent from the old one to step into the new one. So he's calling us to repentance. And then he continues in verse 23, he went throughout all Galilee. So he calls fishermen to follow him, and now he goes through Galilee, this region, which has been called a, a, a region that is dark spiritually. He teaches in their synagogues, in the Jewish places of worship, proclaiming the gospel, that means good news, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and affliction among the people. And so his fame spread throughout all Syria. And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea and beyond the Jordan. So these people that have gathered now to hear from Jesus are people who have been ostracized. They've been kicked out of society. They're the broken and the beaten down, the downtrodden, the poor and the destitute. They're on the margins of society. And not of their own choosing. They've been punted to the margins of society. And particularly have been kicked there from religious people. And so they are not living in the town centers. They're living in the slums. Uh, they're homeless. They're wandering. They're broken. They're hopeless kinds of people. And so Jesus gathers them all together. They're following him and he begins this sermon that we learn in Matthew 1 is a solemn thing that he begins and he begins with blessings. And he begins with blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are poverty stricken, who are, have bankruptcy in their spirit. Blessed are those who mourn over their own brokenness and the brokenness of the world. 
Blessed are the meek, those who feel like they're unimportant. They have things to offer, but are reluctant to offer. It's strength under control. Blessed are those who desire righteousness, for, who desire things to be made right in the world again. And blessed are those who have, are merciful, who are full of mercy. And then he makes this transition now into verse eight. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. There's people who are unimportant. There's people who have been kicked to the margins, insignificant, hurting, and outcast. He says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, at this point in his ministry, Jesus would have been considered a rabbi or a teacher. And the rabbis have followers or disciples, students who follow them. And every rabbi would have an interpretation of the Old Testament law, the Torah. They would have an interpretation. They would call that their yoke. It's the burden they would place on people if they wanted to know God and to see God. So almost every rabbi had a verse like this or a phrase like this, blessed are the pure. He would say things like that. Blessed are those who are pure. Because even for a rabbi or for a religious leader, the belief was purity leads you to God. It's purity, holiness that leads you to God. David said it in Psalms. We see it throughout the Old Testament. It's this idea that purity is what opens our eyes to God. But for these religious leaders, for them, in their declaration of purity and holiness leading us to God, what they had to do was rid their communities, rid their congregations of people who were impure. And so who were the people that were impure? Well, they were the epileptics and the paralytics. They were the addicted. They were the sick and the broken, the lame and the crippled. These are the people that made their communities impure. And so what would the religious leaders do? Well, they would take the impurity of the people and they would push them out so that what remained was seemingly more pure people. And they would teach different rituals and ways to cleanse yourself to become more pure, to become holy. They would talk about washings and cleansing, but more importantly, talk about how you behave. This is what you have to do to be pure. You don't drink, smoke, and chew and go with girls who do. That's, that's what they would say. That's not what they would say, but that's what your Baptist shirt said years ago. Right? There's no dancing, there's no drinking, all that. So you, if you remo rem remove all the impurities, then you will find yourself pure. And so the, the process was to do this from the external. Start outside, and the hope was if we, be, if we begin externally, it'll make its way internally as well. Those of you who grew up in churches like that, how'd that go for you? Has your heart been changed? Because someone told you not to drink and chew and go with girls who do, did that change things for you? So back then, this is what was taught, was the idea of external morality, external purity. And again, it's not just back then. We've grown up in churches like this. It was preached and proclaimed and yelled at to us over and over again. And then the pastor would take his, take his handkerchief and wipe the sweat off his brow and keep yelling at you over and over and over again. This is what was, we were taught. We were taught, blessed are the pure, blessed are the holy, the, because then you will see God. But if you're unclean, you got no shot. And so these people in the margins, kicked out of community, their belief is we'll never see God. We're not pure enough. We are unclean. We will never actually see God. And so when Jesus makes this transition into blessed are the pure, immediately, we've tried the pure thing. Like we're obviously not. Because the belief was the seizures were coming from some sin, whether in your own soul or the souls of your parents. The sickness, the disease, that came from sin. So that's why you've gotta be kicked out. Your addiction came from that. Your brokenness came from sin. So if there's sin, we gotta remove you so that our community might be clean. So then we have to ask the question, is that what Jesus is, if, that was, if, that's, if that's what all the rabbis were saying, 
Be pure, be holy so you can see God. And if you're not holy, you won't see God. Is that what Jesus is saying here? Is Jesus telling the crowd, you gotta work harder, you gotta do better. You gotta clean yourself up if you wanna see God. Is Jesus just following in the footsteps of these other rabbis and preaching a yoke, a, an interpretation of the Torah that was burdensome and heavy? Well, I would argue that no, he's not. But our problem is that we read the Bible in the same way that many of us receive instructions and directions to go find something that's lost. We have our own biases and filters by which we hear things. And so for us, we are Western English-speaking people. And so we read this, and in our culture, that's exactly what we've been told. We've been told that. If you're holy, if you're pure, you'll see God. And if you are not, you never will, so you might as well give up trying. Or just pretend you're pure so that people will think that you're seeing God. So I want to start, though, by looking at the second half of this. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. There's a bit of a linguistic language barrier. It's going to get real nerdy in here for a little bit. Uh, so those of you who are interested, you welcome. Uh, thank you. Uh, the rest of you will wake you up when it's over. Uh, but I want to dig into some linguistics here, some language, because I think it's important for us. We, these are not just black and white words on a page. They come into context and into culture. Okay? So the word here, see, it's the same issue that we have, right, when we say see. Um, it's the same way that I can tell you to see something, and what I can mean is to look with your eyes. I want you to see this, to literally open your eyes. Our middle son, Kaysen, loves me to see everything he's building with his Legos, all the time. I'm like, but I'm busy. Just see, look, Dad, look, see, see. Okay, right, it can mean that. Uh, but sometimes when I say see, it doesn't mean for you to see. You see what I mean? Do you see? Now, you don't see my words, or we need to have some conversations. Uh, you don't see that, but what that means is that you comprehend, right? You understand. It's the very same way that we use the word look. Sometimes it means to look or to look out. Look at that, look out for. And sometimes for some of you, it's the way that you get attention or gain attention when you're telling a story. Because you'll start telling a story, and our eyes glaze over, and then you say, hey, look, 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 look. You don't mean for me to look. What you mean is pay attention, Right? Look at this. Or you would say, look, man. You're trying to make a point. Look, man. You don't want me to look at your words. You're trying to make a point, to gather my attention. So in the very same way, in the Greek language, there's nine different words that can be translated see or look or behold. Nine of them. And in English, we're, we are so refined that there's two for us. But here's, here's some of them. Here are the most common ones that Jesus would have used. The first one in the Greek is the word eido, which means to see or perceive, to know or behold. It's more generic. He uses this word the most. Just like the, the way that we would use see. It's kind of generic. It can fit many different purposes and uses. The second word is the Greek word blepo. And blepo means to see with the heart, to emotionally connect to something. This is what, you, this is what husbands, this is what the wives mean when they want you, they want you to see them. They don't mean, look at me with your eyes. What they mean is I want you to connect with me emotionally, connect with the heart. And Jesus is telling the Pharisees, he's told them before, uh, just because you ido doesn't mean that you blepo. That in your idoing, you're not blepoing, and that's the problem. The third word that Jesus would use is the word theoreo, which means to see as a spectator or just to observe. It's to theorize. Goodness, are we good at this, are we not? It's where we get the word theater, to see something as a spectator. You're not involved in any of it. 
and yet you've made assessments and judgments about what you've seen. We theorize, to theorize. It's the very same thing that happens for you when you're driving down 75 and somebody flies past you. You theorize about what their problem is. That's what you do. You theorize about their issue. You're stuck behind somebody at Publix in line and you're theorizing about their problem. You see, you observe. You're not involved and yet you've made a theory up about what's actually happening. And then the fourth word is the word hara'o, which means to see with the mind. It means to make sense of what you're seeing with your eyes. So it's not just that you perceive, it's not that you connect even emotionally, it's not that it stirs something up emotionally in you. It's not that you just observe something and then make a theory about it. It's that you literally know, you see what's going on behind what's going on. Does that make sense? This is what that word hara'o means. This is what, when, when I was, I was taught high school math for a number of years, and um, once a year, it would make sense to the students. And in that moment, they would say things like, oh, now I see what you're talking about. And at that point, I'm like, I'm just going to retire because that's amazing. I'm going to stop teaching right now. That's what this word means. Oh, I see. Oh, I get it. That's the idea. Oh, now I get it. This is hara'o. So here in Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, when Jesus says, you will see God, he says, you will Hara'o God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will hara'o. They will perceive with their mind. They'll make sense of, oh, I get it, God. Interestingly enough, in the Greek, there's a number of different tenses. And this tense implies an ongoing action. So what Jesus is saying is, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall continually see what God is up to. We can say it this way, blessed are the pure in heart. For they shall continually see God at work in all circumstances. You see why it's important for us to dig a bit deeper than the surface. Because we read it and we've got a whole doctrine about how we manipulate people's behavior because we tell them, if you do the right things, you will see God. Those of us who have tried to do the right things, have you seen God? Like in trying to align yourself and burn all of your CDs and break up with your girlfriend, has that helped you to see God? Like in a way that's lasting. For those of us who um, stopped listening to Nirvana, listened to DC Talk instead, has that helped you? Right, like has, have you seen God in that? No, not in a lasting kind of way. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. You see God at work in all circumstances. It's not just physical seeing God. It's not emotional, and it's not a theory. It's not just seeing the sunrise and thinking that God made it. It's deeper than that. But it's to really know and believe. But we're still stuck we're still stuck here with, okay, so if that's what it means to really understand and say, oh, I get it with God, then I have to be pure. I have to work on my externals to be pure. We're left with blessed are the morally upright, the holy ones, the chaste ones, the innocent ones, because they will continually see God at work. And then if you're like me, like, well, I'm out because that's not me. I'm not morally upright. I've got a past and I've got a present and I will have a future. I'm not holy, I'm not set apart, I'm not chaste, I'm not innocent, I'm guilty, I've got blood on my hands. Does that mean I will never actually see God at work? I'll never actually say, oh, I get it, to God. Is that what that means? We're stuck here longing for some sort of ritual kind of holiness. Or it makes us try to holy ourselves into seeing God. Well, if I just do better, if I white-knuckle myself through this addiction and sin, then I'll see God. Or it makes us try to holy the world. 
so that we can see God. If I just made the world a more holy place and got rid of all those things that are evil, then I would see God. Well, that can't be what Jesus is saying. So back in Matthew chapter five, verse eight, let's look at the first half. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, Jesus adds this qualifier in heart, and that's revolutionary, because the other rabbis are saying, no, no, blessed are the holy, blessed are the pure, the behaviorally pure, because they will see God. They will come face to face with God. And Jesus says, okay, And he'll say it over and over again to the Pharisees. It's not about the outside, but the inside. Not what uh, goes in, not what comes out, what goes in. He says things like, um, you wash the outside of the cup and don't clean the inside of the cup. Jesus makes this statement over and over and over again. This is about our character, not our behavior. Happy, satisfied, congratulations to the pure in heart. This is about motive, which I'm being honest, doesn't help me at all. Like, If you're telling me that my motives have to be pure, then I'm out. I'm completely out. Because I'll do a lot of really good things with a lot of shady motives. So the pure in heart see God. So now, if you're like me, now you just feel hopeless. I will never see God. I know myself. I know there's nothing pure about me. Nothing. As much as I try and pretend and act, there's nothing pure. Like deep down in me. It's impure, it's messy, it's grimy and dirty. So then we just stop trying to see God. We stop trying to see him with our minds and perceive and make sense of God. So we settle. We settle for making sense of scripture. We settle for having knowledge of the Bible. Or we settle for an emotional high that comes from being with his people and singing certain songs with certain keys and notes in it. Or we don't settle at all and we just give up. But what is it that makes this revolutionary that Jesus is actually saying? Well, if there are nine different Greek words for see, there's a handful of two main different Greek words that are translated pure. And the first one is the Greek word hagios. Hagios is where we get the word holy. It's innocent, chaste, chastity, and unpolluted. Anytime in the New Testament you see the word holy, it's most likely this word, hagios, has been translated into holy. And it refers to a ritual kind of cleansing. It's cleaning the outside of the cup. We spent last year studying Exodus. You remember the extended period of time through the tabernacle? This was the word, this is the idea, that you would make the tabernacle holy. You would consecrate the materials. You would consecrate the priests. It took hagios to get into the holy of holies. Right, this is what this we're just speaking of, ritual cleansing, just to be washed. This is what's happening here, hagias. But Jesus does not say, blessed are the hagias in heart. It's not the word he uses. He's not, he doesn't say the holy, the innocent, the chaste, or the unpolluted. The word he uses is the Greek word kataros, which means pure, unmixed, and refined. And I don't mean refined like some of you think you're refined because you choose Chick-fil-A over McDonald's. Not that kind of refined. I don't mean refined because you go to restaurants where there's two forks for you to choose from. This idea comes from purity and cleansing, this refining. It's the idea of something that was once polluted. It was once impure, but has now been made pure through a process of refining. This is, this is the idea. Specifically, This word speaks to the process of taking fine metals like gold 
and turning them into pure gold. It's the refining process by which you would take ore, a mixture of substances with some gold, flex in it, some gold, some metal, precious metal in it, but also surrounded by all sorts of minerals and other metals and grit and grime. And this word, kataros, gold cannot kataros itself. It cannot make itself pure. There's a process that it has to go through, a process of refining, of getting down to what's actually in it. So Jesus is not saying, blessed are those who are consecrated in their heart. What he's saying is, blessed are those who have been refined in their heart. Which sounds great until you understand what this process looks like. It's a three-step process to refine gold. First, it's what's called the crushing. You would take the ore from wherever you harvest it from, and in order to actually get to the metal, to get to the precious gold, it would be pulverized, it would be crushed. Large stones would be dropped upon it. There were machines they would use to just explode the ore and then leave the gold behind. It would be crushed to be made pure. To become kataras, the ore must be broken and crushed to find the gold that remains. It's the idea that David talks about in Psalm 34, 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. That's what he's speaking of. A crushing, a breaking. It's where uh, Paul would say that we have been uh, crushed but not abandoned, broken down but not destroyed. That's the word. Kateros. The first step would be the breaking and the crushing. Once that happens and you're left with a bunch of dusty residue, the word is dross is what comes off of the gold. Anything that's impure, any kind of dirt or filth, it's called dross, D-R-O-S-S. And then they would undergo what's called the washing. And in the washing, you would take the ore covered in the dust of the dross and you would shower it, you would cover it, and you would baptize, you would bathe it in water. You'd bring it back up, wipe off the dross, you would see more dross, you would put it back in the washing, continually doing that. This is the word when Paul in Ephesians 5 says that God, Jesus has set apart the church that he might sanctify her by the washing of water by the word. This is what he's speaking of. So there's three steps. You've got the crushing, the breaking, and then you've got the washing. You've been broken down, the, the metal, the gold is revealed, but there's still dross on it. You've got to wash it off. But then what every refiner would know is it's still not done. Something else needs to happen. And it's the final stage, which is called the furnace. At this point in the purification process, this crushed and cleansed ore is collected and placed in crucibles of clay. And then it's submitted to the furnace. This dross-filled gold ore melts at the extreme temperature of 1,948 degrees Fahrenheit, which is almost as hot as August in Georgia. (laughs) And in order to raise the furnace to that white-hot temperature, bellows are used to pump oxygen into the raging fire. And once the ore melts, an amazing thing happens. The impurities in the gold begin to rise to the surface. The refiner then is able to skim the impurities off the top of the molten metal. Like, oh man, so it's over. Nope. And then it goes back into the furnace again. Brought back up, the dross is wiped off. Put back in, brought back up, dross is wiped off. The more this process is repeated, the purer the gold becomes. Where the dross is taken away, but what is pure remains. 
This is called the refiner's fire. So when Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. What is he speaking of? What's not happy, congratulations, satisfied to those who have made themselves holy, who have been ritually cleansed, who have bathed themselves. It's not those who have been set apart. No, no, no. It's blessed are those who have been crushed and then washed and then refined in the fire of affliction. For they shall truly, continually see God at work in all of it. So you've got a crowd of people who would say, hold on, what? Did you say crushed? Yeah, yeah, that's what it feels like. That's what it feels like to be hopeless. That's what it feels like to feel like I'm not good enough and I've been kicked to the margins. Yeah, that's what it feels like not be able to pay my rent. That's what it feels like to be where I am. That's what it feels like to have my family kick me out of my house because I'm crippled. Yeah, did you say crushed? I feel that. Did you say broken? Yes, yes, all of that. Did you say it feels like you're under the weight of a rock? You better believe that's what it feels like for me. I feel shattered and broken in many pieces. Then did you say then it feels like I'm drowning under the washing? There's water keeps coming, I wave after wave after wave. Yes, 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 blessed am I. Blessed am I who have been crushed and then drowned in the waves of washing. Yes. And then did you say fire? Because my life feels like I'm in fire right now. Did you say refiner's fire? And so the crowd is like, hold on. Wait, you, you don't mean the ritual stuff? You don't mean I have to be better and work harder and be stronger and smarter? What you're telling me is that because of what I've been through, because of the suffering I've walked in, you're telling me I got a shot to see God? Now that's revolutionary. That's revolutionary. It's not religion, this is refining. Religion won't get you to the heart of God. You know what will? Refining, that will get you to the heart of God. Problem is we don't like it. We don't like this part, don't. Like we shouldn't. We don't like it. We've, we've bought the lie that following Jesus means you don't have to suffer. Have you read the Bible? We've made suffering out to be the thing that Jesus saved us from. We said, no, Jesus suffered so I don't have to. You've got it wrong, my friend. Sure, at the end of days in the new heavens and the new earth, absolutely. But while we're here, between the trees, like in between, the already and the not yet, no, 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 there's suffering because it's real. It's part of life on this earth and it's unavoidable. But the gift is that God is good. And he's a refiner who is with us in the fire. And it's not just here that Jesus refers to it. This has been the theme throughout scripture. We just don't have eyes to see it because we're Western English speaking people who regard discomfort as a sign of sin. No, no. It's a good heavenly father who is refining, who has found gold mixed with other stuff. It's not pure. And the way to get it out, to get the purity out of us is not to tell us we're good boys and girls. Like you don't go to a doctor who says, hey, listen, you've got cancer, but I'm so proud of you. Why don't you just go back home? It's fine, we'll figure it out. No, no, you want a doctor say, hey, you've got cancer, let's get that out of there. What do we do? Let's do it. You're like, yeah, I mean, is it gonna be painful? Yeah, it's gonna be painful. 
Like, but like for days and months and years, will it be hard for me to get out of bed? Absolutely. What do you want to do? Like that's the doctor you want. So when Jesus says, blessed are those who have been refined, what he's saying is, listen, it's in there. Let's get it all out. So that what we can find is this purity. Malachi literally calls it the refining fire. The prophets, every single one of them speak to it about the fire of God that's coming for his people. Job speaks of it. The Psalms is full of it. I just don't think we like it. And so we lean into other false theologies about how God gives you a Lamborghini if you give him $10 every Sunday. It's just the good news. This is good news of the kingdom. And in fact, there are also actually instances throughout scripture where God reveals himself through fire. It's almost as if blessed are those who have been refined through fire that they actually see God. So in the book of Daniel, Daniel and a bunch of uh, young Jewish men have been kidnapped. They've been taken out of exile and placed in a foreign country. And because they are good at what they do, they're smart, they're intelligent, they're just good-natured young men, they've been uh, brought into some leadership development program. And King Nebuchadnezzar like, I can do something with these guys. Let me train them. Let me indoctrinate them in our philosophies and our religions. So Nebuchadnezzar builds a huge uh, golden idol. If you've seen VeggieTales, you know how this story goes. So there's uh, this golden idol, and he tells all the people, the sound of the trumpet, you will bow down, the horn, you will bow down to this idol. Well, three guys who were with Daniel, we hear of three of them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, refused to bow down. And the king liked these guys. Like they, they were the cream of the crop. They were going to be the next phase in leadership. Gives them another chance, and they don't. He says, guys, you understand that if you don't bow down, I need to throw you into the furnace. Now, what kind of furnace do you think that was? What do you think it was used for? Well, if you've got a big golden idol next to it, what do you think that furnace was used for? Was it used for gold? I would think it was. I think it was a refiner's fire is what it is. So they refused to bow down. And Nebuchadnezzar has them thrown in. We can read about it in Daniel chapter three, verse 19. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, was filled with fury and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. These men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace was overheated, the flame of the fire killed the men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The men who threw these three men in died. It's so hot that they died just getting these men into the furnace. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. And then Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. And he rose up in haste and he declared to his counselors, didn't we just throw three men bound into the fire? And they answered to the king, true, O king. And he answered and said, yeah, but I see four unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. What theologians would tell you is, it actually is the son of God who's walking with the men in the fire. Blessed are those who have been thrown into the fire of of affliction, for they shall see God. 
Did they see him when they refused to bow? Did they see him when they were brought out into exile? Did they see him then? Maybe, but did they really perceive what was going on? Yeah, they did in the fire, that's when. And because they saw, Nebuchadnezzar saw. Blessed are those who have been purified, for they will see God. So that happened because of the external problems, right? This, the problem of Nebuchadnezzar and his idolatry. And these men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they seemed pure. They did, they did the right thing, and they were still thrown into the refiner's fire of affliction. One thing I love about church is that when we come together to worship God, we bring people from all sorts of different backgrounds and understandings and beliefs and also experiences. Then we bring together people who are um, younger and then some who are not younger uh, altogether. And those of us who are more mature in our life and in our faith have experiences. So here's, here's what we're gonna do. Just by means of testimony, here's what I'm gonna ask you to do. Have you ever been thrown in the fire of affliction, a refiner's fire that was painful and grueling because of the sin of somebody else. If that's you, would you stand? You, feel your, you find yourself in the refiner's fire of affliction because of somebody else's problem. You can stand. Come on. Okay, look around. Someone else's problems caused you to be thrown into the refiner's fire. This is not blame. This is it. This is you grew up with parents like this or a grandparent. You suffered some sort of abuse, whatever. There's refiner's fire. There was a boss who stole money and now you lost your job. Yeah, okay, look around. Now, stay standing if you feel like in the midst of that refiner's fire, you saw God. Oh, all of you? So you're saying it's true. Is that what you're telling me? You're telling me that in the refiner's fire, because of the fire of affliction, you actually saw God. Praise the Lord for you. You can sit down. Exodus chapter three, we did Exodus all last year, so I'll have one of you come up and tell this. I'm just kidding. Uh, uh, Moses um, is a Hebrew boy who's born in Egypt, and the leader of Egypt, the Pharaoh, the king, has made a decree that all Hebrew young boys should be killed when they come out of the womb. Pharaoh's mom was like, not gonna happen to my boy. So she puts him in a basket, floats him down the Nile River, and he actually, long story short, becomes adopted by Pharaoh's family. And he rises to power in the palace of the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. But he sees his Hebrew brothers and sisters being abused in their slavery by Egyptian slave masters. And around the age of 40, uh, Moses' eyes are open to the fact that he's not Egyptian, he's Hebrew. He's gotta do something about it. So he goes out and he murders a man. He kills an Egyptian slave master and then from there realizes, oh no, the Egyptians are after me. So he runs into the wilderness and he's there for 40 more years. And here's where we pick up in Exodus chapter three. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. Now I don't know what kind of furnaces and refining fires you've been in, but I feel like working for your father-in-law might be the most intense of all of them. So he's out there, but he's on the west side of the wilderness. And you don't put your good sheep on the west side. You put your bad sheep on the west side. So not only is he working for his father-in-law, he's apparently not very good at his job. And he only has the job because he's family. And that's why he has the job. You know people like that. And so this is Moses. He's murdered a man. He hasn't owned up to it. He hasn't confessed anything. And he's just running from his problems, running from his sin, running from his guilt and shame. And he's in this, his own affliction on the backside of a mountain. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire. Isn't that interesting? Out of the midst of a bush. And he looked and behold, the bush was burning and yet it was not consumed. You know what else happens in a refiner's fire? It's like everything is burning, but the gold is not consumed. And Moses said, I'm, I will turn aside to see this great sight and why the bush is not burned. 
And the Lord saw that he turned aside. God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said to him, here I am. And he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. When did God speak to Moses? Through the fire. He's a murderer. In his own sin, he's facing the consequences of his own sin. And he spends 40 years as a shepherd in the wilderness. So this will be fun. How many of you have found yourself in the refiner's fire of affliction because of your own problems, your own sin? Would you stand with me? You can stand with me in this one. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Okay. All right. Yes. You caused it. Right? You ran, you're in the affliction, you're in the pain. It's you. It's the decisions that you made. And listen, this is how gracious God is. Whether you caused the fire or someone else caused the fire, the result is still the same. You get to see God. Now, how many of you stay standing would say, no, no, through the afflictions of my own sin, I have seen God. Would you stay standing? <laughs> All of you. So it is true. I mean, look around, people. Look around. This is the gospel. This is it. You can be seated. By the grace of God in the refiner's fire of affliction, whether someone else threw you in it like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego or your own stupid decisions led you into it like Moses, the grace and the result of God is that you got to see him. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are those who have been refined, who have walked in the refiner's fire because they'll be able to see God for who he truly is. So then the question is, well, then what do we do? Well, I think the most efficient thing for us to do is to go look for suffering and go do it together. That's what I think we should do. That's not what the Bible teaches. That's what's called asceticism. Many of the early church fathers believed in that, that if I beat myself enough, I will see God. That's, that's, where they, that's how far they took. So I don't think that's biblical at all. But I think the opposite is also true. We should not avoid suffering. We should not avoid it. We're in a culture that avoids hard times, that condemns and criticizes and excuses and blames our way out of hard times. I don't think we should run to it, nor should we run away from it. It is unavoidable. In Genesis 50, 20, what the enemy meant for evil, God can use for good. The same fire of affliction that's meant to destroy you can be the one that refines you. Matthew chapter 19, Jesus meets a rich young man. Matthew 19, verse 16. Behold, a man came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, Rabbi, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. And the man said, Yeah, yeah, but which ones though? Like, just so we're on the same page and you know which ones you want me to keep. And Jesus said, Okay, well, you shall not murder commit adultery, you shall not steal or lie. Jesus is like, let's just, we'll start there. Like, we'll start with the basic ones. You should honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, check, you have done all that. What do I still lack? So here's what the rich young ruler understands. Listen, I've done all the religion. Like, I've done the hagios stuff and I still feel like something's missing. Like, I've done it all. I've played the games, I've done all the things. I've been good with my church attendance, I've listened to the Bible, I've got a radio Christian bumper sticker on the back of my car, I know what to do. 
but it feels like I'm just missing eternal life. So then Jesus says to him, okay, well then if you want to be perfect, if you want to be pure, why don't you go sell what you possess and give it to the poor? You'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. What Jesus says is, okay, then I, hear, I think here's the issue. You've made an idol out of your comfort. And I want to invite you into what could potentially be suffering. Like if you really want this, you really want eternal life, you want to see God for who he is, here's the invitation. Sell everything that makes you comfortable and go do a hard thing, do that. Sadly, verse 22, the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Here's where I think many of us Western American Christians find ourselves today. No, I've done all the things. I've hagios myself and I still feel like I'm missing God and God says, all right, then listen, here's where we're going. That unconfessed sin you're holding on to, I want you to confess it. And then I want you to walk through that fire of conviction and affliction. I want you to feel what that's like. And we go away sorrowful for we have many unconfessed sins. Okay, well then I'm, I think you should leave that job you're at that pays you so much money and start to follow me pursuing ministry. And we went away sorrowful because we liked our 401k. Hard times are coming. Suffering is coming. It's part of life. We spent so much energy trying to run away from it that we've missed the gift of it. But notice this about this rich young ruler. He had religion but refused to be refined. Because of that, he had a hard time seeing God. On the outside, this man looked like every one of your dreams of what you want your daughter to marry. Morally pure, wealthy, able to provide for himself and your daughter. And yet he never saw God. So, what do we do? Personally, I think it leans on us. What do we do with suffering? What do we do with the refining fire of affliction? And then secondly, I'm in no place to say this, but I'm gonna say it anyway. We're in a culture, parents, where we try to keep our kids from suffering. I think suffering might be good for some of our kids. Maybe some scraped knees would be fine. Maybe some bad decisions in the safety of your home would be fine. Maybe allowing them to face the consequences of that zero on their test instead of complaining to the teacher that's the teacher's fault might be good for them. It might be good for them to have to sit on the bench and not be the starter again this year. It might be good for them. I remember growing up, my parents are here this morning, I remember growing up where my parents didn't know my grades until my report cards came out. What a gift that was. Because I'd get a 30 on a Tuesday and by Friday, man, I got me a B again, so that's fine. But I just wonder, parents, if we might actually walk with our kids in the refining fire instead of trying to not let the fire get to them. Students, I love you. You have to do hard things. Your life will never be comfortable. There are hard things you must do. There are decisions you must make. And it will come with suffering. But God is with you in the suffering. So what do we do? Well, Peter tells us to rejoice. 
which didn't make sense until I read Matthew 5, 8. Yeah, I'm gonna rejoice in the fire of affliction because then I get to see and make sense of what God is doing, absolutely. First Peter chapter one, verse six, in this, in this pain and affliction, you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Why? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor the revelation of Jesus Christ. How many of you would say that due to the refining fire of affliction, you have a different mode of worship? Would you say that? I worship differently now because I know him. I see him. Though you have not seen him, though you have not ido to him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, perceive with your eyes, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory. You know who worships the best. You know who has the most joy is the person who met God in the fiery furnace. That's who. And for some of you where there's no joy, I just think you've been avoiding the furnace. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, which is the salvation of your souls. In James chapter one, James continues it and says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials, or trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith, this refining fire of your faith produces steadfastness, patience, endurance. And he says, let the endurance, let the steadfastness finish its work. Let it have its full effect. Here's our problem. When we step into the furnace of affliction, we try to get out as quickly as possible and we don't let it do its work. Sometimes we have to sit in it. Moses sat in it for 40 years. But you know what he got? He got to see God. And then God called him to set people free. You want ministry in your life? You might need to let patience finish its work. Don't try to get out so fast. God's with us in it. That you might be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. Jesus says it this way, blessed are the pure in heart they shall see God. Would you bow your heads, close your eyes. Don't know where you find yourself today. But we're in a world that does everything it can to avoid pain and suffering. And in so doing, we begin to blame and excuse other people. To avoid suffering, we kick people to the curb. And yet it's those very people who have actually seen God. It's why when someone comes up and gives you a testimony, you're amazed at how good God is. So I don't know where you find yourself this morning. If you find yourself in the crushing, and it's heavy, and it's painful. promises that you might be crushed but never destroyed persecuted but never abandoned in the fiery furnace of affliction you'll find Jesus there for some of us it's that flood and wave after wave of washing and you feel like you're drowning in it yeah but it's making you pure that you might have eyes to see God and what he's up to then there are some of us who are just in this fire of affliction. It feels like it will not let up. Well, let steadfastness have its work. 
you might be mature and complete, lacking in nothing, that you might see God. And you'll see him in such a way that you'll never be able to unsee what you've seen. That once you've seen him for who he is, you'll never be able to not see that again. It's not hagios, it's not the external behavior modification. This is a renewing of our heart and our mind. Blessed are those who've been refined by the breaking and the washing and the fire. For they'll be able to see what God is up to in their hearts, in their families, in their communities, and in the world. Father, we love you. Sometimes it's hard to see some things that you allow us to go through as love. But if love is who you are, then everything you do is love. I know there are people in the room today who are in the midst of affliction. Some caused externally, some internally, but the grace is that the result can still be the same. So God, I pray you give us courage. Give us the ability to rejoice. Help us tell our stories. So the person in the fire would look at us and we'd say, yeah, I've been there. Boy, did I see God. Keep going. Thank you for the way you love us. Thank you for never leaving and abandoning us, even in the midst of our crushing and washing and refining. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.